Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 463 for September 1st, 2018. On today's show, flugelhornist Dimitri Matheny. Dimitri's latest album is called Jazz Noir. Talking with Dimitri Matheny. Welcome to the Jazz Session, man. Thank you very much, Jason. Uh, before we kick into all the highbrow musical conversation, tell me about your new dog. Oh, that's nice. Well, I, it, it, gosh, at this point, I think I've had her for almost three years. I got her as a as a puppy when she was just a couple weeks old, and her name is Scout, and she's a mix of Australian Shepherd and Akita. And uh, I she's a picture, but Australian Shepherd, I can't. So what's what size is she? Well, like like so the Australian Shepherds are kind of like um, uh, border collies or okay. cattle dogs. And they and they are very they're high energy. and They're beautiful dogs. Uh, and then, the, of course, the Akita is more of a family dog and they're larger and, and very loyal and very sweet. Scout is about 35. She's under 40 pounds. She's so she's kind of small for the for the two breeds together. And, um, and she's just perfect for me. She's a great road dog, man. She loves to travel. She's great with strangers and loves kids and loves, loves to meet people. And she's just a lot of fun. And, and, uh, she kind of keeps me honest, you know, she, she's my little workout buddy. She has to go on a couple walks every day. So she keeps me from being, being too sedentary. And, uh, and she's really, really smart. Like, like, for example, she, you know, if, if I forget to if I forget to uh, put food in her bowl, she goes and gets the bowl and brings it and throws it at my feet. <laughs> and if, <laughs> if I'm being uh, if I'm procrastinating on the walk, you know, she will she will bring uh, her leash to me in her mouth. You know, and then bring my if, wow. I, if I don't respond to that, she brings me each of my shoes. <laughs> she's like, "Let's go!" So yeah, oh, she's pretty she cool. Way more, I assume she handles merch sales on the road. It sounds like she's way more organized. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty close to turning the finances over to her as well. She's awesome. she's a she's a little more <laughs> a little more diligent than I. Oh, that's great. Well, I want to uh, dig into recent recordings and touring and all that stuff, but I I hoped that maybe we could start uh, a little bit in the past because I want to uh, to talk about someone who's very important to you and. Uh, whose star I hope is not diminishing, but I want to make sure that we're lighting it up, and that's of course Art Farmer. And I, oh, great. I thought perhaps you could talk a little bit about maybe you could even tell folks because certainly some younger folks listen to this show who may may not know who Art Farmer is. Maybe you could just tell people who he is. But then, uh, sure. you know, more equally importantly, how you and Art connected and and kind of the role that the fairly large role he played in your musical life. 
Well, cool. Um, thanks for asking me about Art Farmer. You know, this year would be Art Farmer's 90th birthday anniversary. In fact, this month, and he, he was born in August of 1928. So, um, so there's some celebrations planned and some things going on. There's actually a brand new website uh, devoted to him, which is artfarmer.org. And uh, people should check that out. It's got a lot of cool interviews with people that, that uh, were close to art and, and, you know, can talk about him and his life and his music. He was for me um, a, a pretty huge discovery in my musical development when I was, I was a trumpet player and I was kind of doubling on flugelhorn. I loved the flugelhorn, and I and I loved his music. And the more deeply I got into his music, the less and less I wanted to play the trumpet. And the more I found myself, uh, you know, really guided in the direction of the flugelhorn. And um, to my, you know, to my ears, he's the greatest practitioner of that instrument in history. I mean, no one ever really was able to get as rich and as beautiful a sound on the flugelhorn and to really explore its timbres so completely. And, um, let's see, he, he, uh, gosh, when, in the late eighties, um, when I met him, he was living in Vienna, Austria, but coming over to the United States and spending about half his year touring mostly in the States. And, um, was enjoying kind of a resurgence of interest. Um, it was very active recording, had a quintet with a, a saxophone player, Clifford Jordan. And, um, and I just had the opportunity to meet him. And at that point he was, he was really my hero. And I had been writing letters and listening to his music. And I was kind of obsessed to tell you the truth. I was a little bit of a stalker, <laughs> you know, um, and then, and when I when I had the opportunity to meet him and study with him, it, it it became a kind of a finishing school for me. I was I was all finished up at the Berklee College of Music in Boston, and I was just starting my professional life. And uh, I had a lot of questions, man, just about how you get this thing done. And he was incredible. He was so generous with his time and his talent. He was so sweet to me, and um, you know. At first, I would go down. I would go to New York and and sit next to him on the piano bench, and we'd work on tunes and things. And after a while, I I actually kind of just started following him around on the road and carrying his case and just pestering him with questions. And he was awesome. He he, he was so great to me. I, I'm eternally grateful to Art Farmer. I got to spend the last ten years of his life uh, uh, studying with him. And so he really definitely became a mentor to me.
that feels very much like a story that you don't hear people tell all that much anymore because that seems like a generational story to me that that feels like that kind of uh, bandstand apprenticeship that was the story in jazz mm-hmm. for so long you know that was how that was the only story there was to tell there was no academic approach to the music and it seems like yeah, that's you true. Kind of were able to to have both you you had a, you know the academic side but you also were able to to apprentice with a a real master of the music yeah and it, and it's it's really interesting to to think about how different those kinds of training are you know i mean on the one hand um I, I i'm really glad that i that i've studied music theory and harmony and done transcriptions and you know there's this kind of a of a jazz education it's, it's been completely institutionalized now this idea that you know jason crane plays a solo and i think uh, oh I, I dig that solo so i i write it down and then i analyze it and i go oh look you know and the top of this chorus he starts on the natural nine and then he plays a mixolydian scale and so forth you know and we analyze it to death and then we codify like oh here's a lick here's a little melodic fragment that he played now let me learn this in every key you know and that's just a process that that is is you know it's now part of not only college training but you know jazz camps and every little community college and practically every high school has this now all over the country um but as you say, back in the day, the way people learned this music was from listening to each other and listening to records and listening to the greats. And and if they were so fortunate as to join the band of some elder musician and asking them questions, hey, man, what's that thing you did? You know, show me that, you know. And um, it was really interesting. One of the very first times I, I got to meet Art and, uh, and you know, one of our very first lessons, I remember I asked him about a chord scale. I was like, hey, you know, can can you play... C sharp diminished over A7 flat nine. And he was like, no, 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 no. There's one scale. Okay. It's a chromatic scale. It's got all the notes. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, wait a minute. This is not what I've been learning at school. (laughs) You know, know, so, so a lot of those cats, they had a different idea about, about what we do when we improvise, you know, they, it's about listening and reacting and having a conversation and playing a melody and, you know, you know, being in the moment and being with the music and the whole idea that you'd be like, okay, now here comes the turnaround. I'm going to plug in this Clifford Brown lick I've been working on. <laughs> you know, that thing is not even, that's not part of it. You know? Now you mentioned so, getting a chance to learn from him about, I, I think you used the phrase getting this whole thing together, which to me implies mm-hmm. that you were able to ask him some questions outside of just about the music, but about the life in music. Is that oh, yeah. the case? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, I would say for for every question that I asked him about a tune or about, you know, a pattern or an arpeggio or a scale or something, you know, I would ask him things like, you know, who feeds your cat when you're on the road? And like, how do you get the bass on the airplane? You know, because <laughs> you know, uh, really like it's it, it really crazy, right? You, you get your degree and in music, you're about to start your career. And then all of a sudden there are these very fundamental, basic kind of questions <clears throat> that you realize that you, you, you don't have answers to. You know, another example is I, I took a, a bunch of music business classes and, you know, they were focused on things like, you know, uh, contract negotiation and, and, um, you know, the Harry Fox agency and the royalty stream and, 
residuals and things like that. And, you know, meanwhile, the, the music business questions I had were like, you know, how do I get this bartender that's booking these bands to listen to my demo tape? Right. You know, right. How do I, how do I get, make sure that I get paid? I, I've already got to pay the band, you know, and I've got to chase down the guy to pay me after the gig. And what do you do? And how do you do that? You know? And, and so, you know, he was, he was really, really smart about life, you know, not just about um, music, not just about business, but about, about life, you know, and how you live this life and, and, and the long game. You know, the idea that you're, you're going to be doing this for decades, so you can't burn yourself out. You can't spend all your time practicing and you can't spend all your time hustling. You know, you, you, you need to relax a little bit, too, and pace yourself. And, you know, really, really a smart man. And you have certainly built a career that involves a lot of time on the road. I mean, you, you know, you're playing uh, triple figure shows a year and that seems like something that it must take pretty incredible discipline to figure out how to do that while not also burning yourself just to a crisp at the same time. Yeah. And truth be told, I, I did burn out once right around the age of 30. I, I had been hustling so hard for so many years that I reached a point where I, I kind of hit the wall and I couldn't even, you know, I, not only could I not hustle, I couldn't even return a phone call. I became kind of unreliable for a while. And it took me a few years to reconnect with people and, and uh, you know, kind of go, I had to go back to some, some old clients and some musicians that I've worked with before and, and, and go, you know, Hey guys, I'm back and, and I'm not an asshole anymore. <laughs> you know? I've, I've learned, I've learned my lesson, you know, because you, you know, Duke Ellington said, um, you know, when he was asked about how to keep his big band on the road and he asked about the music business, he said something to the effect of, well, it's very exciting. It's like having a tiger by the tail. You know, it's really exciting, but you can't let go for even a minute, you know? And, uh, and that's true. That's true. You know, that the other reason you don't want to burn out is because, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing how quickly you can lose relationships and, you know, both professionally and personally, if, if, you know, you, you don't do the work that you need to put in to keep those things alive and the kind of cultivation, you know, that you need to do. So the way I look at it now, it's kind of like, um, you got to, you're like a shopkeeper, you know, every day you have to brush your teeth and every day you have to play your long tones and you have to send a few emails and return a few phone calls. And, and, you know, if you just do a little bit every day, you don't get overwhelmed, you know, and you have to do it whether you're on the road or at home. You know that's the other thing. So you got to be you got to be comfortable, you know, with the kind of uh, life that you put together for yourself. That's another reason the dog is so cool. You know, because you know she doesn't care. She doesn't care if you got a gig or not. She doesn't care what time you got in last night. You know, she you know she's got she's got to be fed and she's got to be walked and she's got to be played with and she needs to be brushed and you know <laughs> she's got her schedule and it's, there's something really comforting about that. You know.
what are some other things you've learned about the the musician's life that you know now that maybe you didn't know before you burned out at 30? What are some of the things that that help you keep it together at this point? Well, um, I think there's a, a goal in this that I didn't have when I was first starting out that now has become really important to me. And that's a kind of, a kind of humility and quiet consistency, you know, like the grandfather clock that's in the corner that just keeps ticking no matter what the weather is outside. Because you see, I'm 52 now and I've been doing this for 30 something years, you know, and, um, you know, I have to say I, I've, I've weathered many different, you know, jazz's dead episodes, uh, quickly followed by so-and-so is the new savior of jazz, you know, you know what I mean? And it, it, it seems to happen every, every three to five years. And, and not only that, but you, you know, you, you do this long enough, you start to see the first, first you see, um, your heroes, uh, finally get the recognition that they deserve. And then you see it happening for your colleagues. And then you start to see it happening for your former students. And there's something wonderful about that, but also bittersweet, you know, because you, you realize that life is, is finite. And, and so, uh, there's a kind of, um, I don't know. It's not, it's not a sprint. Right. And you, and, and the idea is, is not, uh, every time you meet someone, what can they do for me and how can I get over? And nor is it even the sales the sales idea of what can I do for them? But just the, the idea of this moment right now in the fellowship and, and having a real conversation. And, and then every time you play music, what a privilege it is to have the opportunity to, to create music with someone. And and to and for that moment to be all it can be without it necessarily needing to lead to something, you know, these are things that I never would have thought about when I was in my twenties. Do you have a kind of a group of musicians with whom you regularly collaborate, but who are in different geographical areas? Because you spend a lot of time on the road and in a lot of different places. And yeah. I've never been sure: are you bringing you know the same four people with you, or are, do you have? Well, I I know. You know, I have a bass player and a drummer I like to work with here, and I have a yeah. player here. Yeah. How does it work for you? Well, that's actually something I learned about from Art Farmer because, um, you know, part of what happens is you get, you know, you'll get an anchor date, um, so you get a, a, a job at a festival or a big concert presenter, and that gig, that one gig, might pay well enough to bring your band with you to fly a quintet somewhere and stay in a hotel and, you know. But a lot of the gigs that you do on the road, um, you know, little one-nighters and small venues and things like that, they don't pay as well. And it becomes untenable. You, you look at the course of a tour, and if you're really trying to keep a group, a large group on the road, um, and moving around to different regions or, or even you know, internationally, it becomes really difficult to do, it, certainly if you're trying to do this for a living. And, you know, the, the goal is to maximize what, you know, what money you can bring home with you, to put it really bluntly. And, um, and I looked at Art Farmer, you know, and he had working bands. Um, you know, he famously, after the jazz tech, he had a working group with uh, Jim Hall. And, um, you know, he's had a number of working bands in Europe and in the United States. But a lot of the time, um, he would go to a region and he would have 
musicians that he worked with in that region whenever he would come back to a particular city or a particular part of the country um he, he was like reassembled his working band in that area and um you know the cats sounded great and um i remember one time i i was like uh Hey Art, you know what's what's the secret to to being a band leader? I mean, you're working with the rhythm section du jour, and yet you know you always sound like a band, and the guys always they I mean they they take it so seriously and they play so beautifully and everyone swings. You know what's happening? How you know how do you do it? And his response was, uh, Well, Dimitri, if you if you find that you're the smartest cat in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> 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 you know, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure that was just his way of saying, you know, you, you surround yourself with talents greater than your own and, and you can't lose. And if it's people that, that you love and respect and get along with and you have those relationships and you cultivate those relationships over many years, well, then it's like, you know, when you come together with an old friend, someone you haven't seen in a long time, and you're able to just pick up right where you left off and continue the conversation. You know, it's the same kind of thing musically. So, yeah, I have, um, I'm going to Santa Fe, New Mexico next week, and there's a rhythm section that I've been working with there for over a decade. And I've got some new material that they haven't seen and some old things that they already know. And uh, it'll be great. And I love those guys. And it, and it, it that becomes also a, a really a nice aspect of of this life, you know, that in the same way that when you travel to a place that you've been to before, and you think, oh, I, I get to go back to that one restaurant. I love that place. Or, you know, I know I'm going to stay here and I'm going to take my walk here. And, you know, you, you kind of get excited about returning to a place that you've been to before, maybe a little nostalgic. Um, having a chance to, to reconnect with musicians that, that you love to work with, that you haven't worked with them for a year. You know, that's great. It's, it's a great thing. And so, you know, of course, when I used to fantasize about this life as a kid, it was, you know, Miles Davis Quintet, you know, 1959, you know, I would have this idea of, you know, my band and I are going to get on the tour bus. We're going to spend two weeks in Kansas City and two weeks in Philly. Right. <laughs> That's not the life at all. It's not like that at all. to the show in a minute. First, I want to tell you about an important way you can support The Jazz Session. Go to patreon.com slash the jazz session right now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the jazz session. $5 a month gets you a bonus episode every month just for subscribers in which a jazz fan talks about an album they love. If we reach 100 subscribers, there will be three episodes of the main show every month instead of two, which is what there are now. If we get to 200 subscribers, there'll be a show every week. That's patreon.com slash the jazz session, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the jazz session. For five bucks a month, you can help keep the show growing. Thanks.
your most recent record uh, is <laughs> it's one of those records when I first listened to it I thought oh well this is essentially just a record that was made for me like this <laughs> I get it so I <laughs> looked into my brain and thought well what kind of record would Jason like to hear okay here it is and we'll record it uh, it's called Jazz Noir <laughs> and uh, so anybody who knows me at all um, knows that there are several things that I like and among them uh, is jazz and I also like kind of old classic noir films and uh, noir literature and I also really mm-hmm. like uh, cool spoken word stuff and oh. so this album uh, just is an embarrassment of riches for someone like me because it contains all of those things and it it really put me in mind of stuff like you know Mingus's Clown and I remember the mm-hmm. first time I heard Charlie Hayden's first Quartet West album uh, mm-hmm. that had, you know bits of the MGM logo music strung throughout right and i just thought that stuff was so cool and this is kind of an entire record celebrating uh, the stuff i love most about that that noir feeling so i wanted to ask you how it came about and Mm -hmm. uh, because it feels like a real uh, it feels like a real project that was (laughs) love-based yeah uh, yeah well you and i have that in common man i mean like uh if you were just to sit and just start pre-associating and writing lists of uh, film composers and, and scenes from films and spoken word moments and, and, you know, timeless classics, you know, that, that you would want to perform or record, you know, long before you would run out of ideas, your hand would just get so tired, you'd have to stop writing. <laughs> right. And so for me, this was like for a few years, I've been doing, um, you know, a spoken word number or two as part of the show. And then, you know, I was always, uh, I would hear something in, in the movie, you know, not even assume sometimes it would be like incidental music. And I would go, oh, that's so great. What is that? And then I'd, I'd go, go away and write something or arrange something for the band. So I had all this material. And um, eventually I decided to record it. And so the hard part with this project was deciding what not to put on the recording. because. Okay. You know, you 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 have to uh, pick and choose something that you think would have a nice flow. And you know, um, I'm still kind of hung up. You know, nowadays people they don't worry as much about an album and sequencing uh, as as they once did. But you know, coming out of out of the the listening that I've always done, and you know, even album rock, you know, the idea was like, well, it would be a good opener for you know, or you know. You have to think in terms of you build an album the way you build a set, for sure. example, or, or or a meal, and so you know a lot of when you start thinking about it, some of this stuff, you know, you, you're like, oh, the, gosh, you know, you, everything can't be a moody minor ballad. <laughs> you, know, you need some, you know, you, you need to have a murder scene and a car chase in there somewhere, right. <laughs> you know, you know. So, so I did try to do that, and I also wanted to have a mix of some familiar. Um, you know, literal movie scenes that people would recognize as well as some, some fresh original material. And, and, um, and then um, in addition to the, those classic films, um, I grew up in the seventies watching television and especially these 1970s television detective crime dramas, you know, all these shows like the Rockford files and sure. Melon and wife and, and things like that. And, um, you know, one of the cool things about those shows, Columbo, is that you would have a studio orchestra and and an actual like like 
you know, every scene would have music behind it. And, and, and it was some of the hippest third stream music I've ever heard because it was, it was like a little, a little chamber orchestra, but every now and then they'd swing or they'd play something kind of funky, you know, you know, and they would, and the way that they would kind of segue from one section to another, I just always loved that. And I've always been looking for ways to kind of bring that into the live performance. So um, I tried to, to, um, to bring a little bit of that element into the recording as well. And then the last thing is, is this whole, this whole idea of music that is kind of, um, at once, uh, uplifting and melancholy. And I, and I don't really know how to put it otherwise, but a lot of Stevie Wonder's compositions have this quality. And, um, you know, a lot of there's, there's, there, there are modern, there's, there's modern music that has this quality that it's, it's kind of dark, has a darkness to it. And at the same time, a hopefulness. And, um, so that's something that I've been trying to inject into the music. Anyway, we've been having a lot of fun with this recording. And, and, and as, as is always the case after the album came out, um, when all these people found out that I was, you know, uh, you start meeting all the other like-minded individuals that are into this stuff and they'll come up to you and they'll be like, well, have you ever heard this? Have you ever heard this? And I'll be like, no, I haven't. And then, you know, someone will lay a recording and be like, Oh man, this is killing. And I never, you know, I mean, how dare I make an album called jazz noir before I've ever heard all this great Patrick Williams music, you know? So, so I've got a, um, I've got to come up with a sequel at some point, you know, and do another one because yeah, I mean, now, is, of course, I'm, I'm adding all kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there is the finances of you know, it can't be a yeah. quadruple album, so at some that's point, right. you have that's to right. some, some people up. That's right, and and also do other things so so you don't just become that you know the noir guy. You right, know, that, exactly. <laughs> There's only yeah. so many fedoras you can buy, you know. <laughs> right. So talk yeah. about writing the the big uh, spoken word piece on here. I know that uh, there's also a piece on here that has some of Dana Joya's words associated with it. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. Crime scene is kind of the the big uh, you know twelve minute centerpiece. Uh, yeah. Just tell me about that about putting that together. Okay. Um, well, uh, it's called Crime Scenes, and it's it started out with this idea of San Francisco at night. You know, you know, as as a musician, you you finish the gig, and you know it's like one o'clock in the morning, and you're driving back home, and you see a version of your city that the tourists don't always see. This is my city, a faraway city on a lost peninsula at the edge of the world. A tragic, romantic city of secret hopes and deadly dreams. A city so heartbreakingly beautiful, anyone who doesn't love it is either too sane too sober. Herb Kane calls it Baghdad by the Bay. Eddie Muller calls it the Noir City. Tony Bennett calls it America's Paris. 
call it home. It's springtime in San Francisco, and a chill is in the air. And there, there's a kind of a stark beauty to it. Um, in fact, you know, I, I mentioned Miles Davis in, in, in uh, the, you know, the mid-century, you know, playing live at the Blackhawk. Well, I used to have to drive past Turk and Hyde you know, on my way home from the gig and, and it's very different now, you know, it's now it's a, it's a really rough area. You still have little scraps of neon. And anyway, I just thought, and, you know, I, so I want to have something that kind of conjures mood images in the mind of the listener and, and, uh, is, is almost like a San Francisco Valentine, you know? And, um, and then I, and then my next thought was, well, what if it is episodic and has scenes? You know, what if I have a, an actual like write a write a love song and have a love scene, and, and then have some music for for uh, um, you know a, a street chase or a search, you know, and um, the, the the way you did with those studio orchestras uh, in those '70s cop shows I mentioned, and so so that's how it began. Um, it, you know, crime scenes ends up becoming a kind of an extended form composition with lots of different uh, little vignettes, and um, and then for the narrative, for the voiceover narrative, which is kind of in that um, hard-boiled detective uh, movie uh, voiceover style, I I tried to drop in a lot of cliches that sounded like Dash Hammett and Raymond Chandler. <laughs> kind of had some fun with that. It's cool because the album as a whole is kind of a movie that you have to make your own pictures for, but that at the center mm-hmm. is that one piece, which is an even more concentrated, like short film yeah. to make your own pictures for, which I yeah. think is really, really cool because people aren't doing a lot of that anymore. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Well, I got to tell you, man, I, I love doing that stuff, but when I do it live in the club or in a concert hall and I can see the faces of the people, it's really funny how it splits the crowd right in half. Because oh, sure. as soon as as soon as I start with it, I'll you know I'll see some guy and he's like thumbs up. He's like yeah, you know, and I'll look <laughs> right next to him. His date is rolling her eyes like I did not sign up. For <laughs> 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 so you know you got to do you got to do just a little bit of that in every show. You can't you can't go too far with that <laughs> stuff. But I I do have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, in my mind uh, I sound like. Jack Webb or Morgan Freeman or something. <laughs> right, it's exactly. not my. It's not my. It's not my voice. <laughs> we all do, babe. Let me tell you. We all yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me ask you the most hard hitting question of of the interview, which is why don't more people play flugelhorn? If you devote yourself to the flugelhorn, and and you actually stop playing the trumpet, then you're kind of cutting off your opportunity to play in a lot of different horn sections. You know, before when I played trumpet, I got to do. You know, I got to do these pickup gigs with like, you know, Motown bands and I played in pit orchestras and I played in big bands and I did this all, all this other kind of stuff. And when I started focusing entirely on the flugelhorn, it pretty much meant that I was going to have to hustle a lot of work for myself because, you know, people will hire you to play like singers will hire you to play behind them on a recording session. And every now and then someone is, is uh, has something that calls for flugelhorn and you'll get the call for that. But you know, you don't get a lot of people that are that are starting like a funk band. Like, you know what we need? We need a flugelhorn <laughs> up in here. You, you know, it just it doesn't happen. So I think what happens is trumpet players will double on flugelhorn. 
and they'll play it when you know when they want to sound a little warm or a little more lyrical. And they'll think of it like the way you think of a, of a particular mute. You know, it's just one one color, one sound that I use to you know to change it up, and then I go back to my primary instrument, which is the trumpet. But for me, man, is like I I never really liked my sound on the trumpet. And I just love the flugelhorn. I love the way it sounds. I love the way it feels. I even like the name, Jason. I know it makes the children giggle. But I, I, I like saying the word flugelhorn. I especially love it when someone with a German accent pronounces it correctly. <laughs> so, but the kids really do. When you, when you play a show for kids and you tell them the instance of flugelhorn, they giggle uncontrollably like, it, like you said some Dr. Seuss <laughs> you know, kind That's of right, thing. Exactly. But, but yeah, um, and then I, I, it is kind of a mystery, though. You know, like, um, like think about in the symphonic tradition, the role of the clarinet, and and you know, then along comes the saxophone, and there are some there are some pieces, some symphonic pieces, especially some some you know later compositions for saxophone orchestral compositions, but. Doesn't a saxophone like the, the saxophone exist, and yet a lot of people are choosing to play clarinet, and they could play the saxophone, but they don't because they love clarinet. I don't know. Yeah. I, to me, that the, there's a there's there's such a beauty and such a warmth to the flugelhorn. It, it it kind of you know, and then there are certain musicians like okay, Roy Hargrove. Roy Hargrove has one of the most beautiful flugelhorn sounds I've ever heard. If I could sound like Roy Hargrove on the flugelhorn, I would play the flugelhorn all the time. But he he still goes back and forth, so you know it's it becomes a matter of, I guess, personal taste and preference. getting close to the the end of our time here but i uh, i don't want to let you go without talking about the most important topic which is comic books and so <laughs> my man <laughs> <laughs> because i'm certainly not going to have another died in the wool comic nerd on my own show and not have about comic books. so that's the beauty the beauty of no one editing this ever uh so uh now I, if I think of you, I think of you as primarily not certainly not exclusively, but I mean when I think of you, I think of you as a Green Lantern guy. But 
I can't yeah. tell if that's just because you post more about Green Lantern, but is that is the Green Lantern your kind of is that your go to? Yeah, I I I collect Green Lantern comic books and all the Green Lantern offshoots, um, which is a lot. You know, I mean, yeah. you've got a, all the all the Green Lantern books and all the Green Lantern core books, and then of course all the Elseworlds and all the crossovers and all that. You know, so you I, I could spend the rest of my life collecting a few comic books a week and, and still not exhaust that well. And that's what, that's what I'm interested in. I, I, I just love that, that particular mythos. I'm a sci-fi uh, aficionado and, and I like the whole science fiction element of it and the futurist kind of element. Um, I, I also, when I was a kid and my dad used to buy comic books, he would get a fistful of just whatever it could have been, you know, Richie Rich and Archie and, you know, Marvel, DC, whatever, whatever he got at the Seven Eleven. Um, but I, I always identified with uh, with Hal Jordan and with the the whole Green Lantern idea. And um, and then years later, I, I I was thinking about it, and and I realized that it, it shares certain elements with other things that I love. You know, um, growing up when I did, um, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker was a thing, and um, this idea of you're just kind of going along, minding your business, and then all of a sudden, uh, you're you're taking on this grand adventure, and you are you have to uh, rise above your station and and do something heroic, you know, and hit the road. I mean, Hal Jordan, you know, he's basically this just a guy. He's you know. He, doesn't have any superpowers and he wasn't bitten by a radioactive spider and he's not from another planet. And he's given this, um, this, this incredible power. And he has this, this implement, this device that, uh, if he has enough discipline and enough willpower, he's able to create whatever he sees in his imagination. You know, it's like Harold and the purple crayon, you know, and uh, did you ever read that book as a kid? Oh, my God, yeah. Well, no, not as a kid, but I read it to my kids millions of times. Yeah. Yeah, so it's the same story. I mean, the, the, the Green Lantern's power ring is like Harold's purple crayon. And Harold, you know, uh, whenever he gets in a fix, he, you know, he imagines what he needs to imagine, and he draws it, and it becomes real. And that's, that's what these Green Lanterns do. And so I really love this idea uh, and, and it's a perfect metaphor for what it is, the life of an artist and especially a jazz musician. I mean, that's what we do. If we can overcome our, our, our anxiety and our fear um, and get past ourselves, and then if we have enough discipline and willpower and stay with it, we, we learn this ability to create whatever we imagine. And, um, you know, that's what Art Farmer did, and that's what Hal Jordan does. And then also, as I've... I've come to collect these things over the years. You know, this guy's been around since 1959, 57, I think actually. And, um, and in that time, he's gone through a lot of different stuff. There, there've been a lot of different periods, you know, periods, dark periods. He was even a villain for a while. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, periods is, uh, when he was a middle-aged guy and he was kind of alone and on the road. And there are these, there are these issues of the green lantern where he's just really waxing, philosophical about life on the road and there are these long passages where he talks about you know how the you know the road is gonna uh take him where he needs to go and, and he'll never be alone alone as long as he has the road and, and there's just some beautiful beautiful thoughts 
So it's kind of fun too to to have a fictional friend, you know, and 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 be with that person as they go through a whole lot of changes. And then you you have that the thing of different writers and uh, different people come along and, and re envision and 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 uh, come up with a a new version of that same character, you know, and, and, uh, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. It's been, it's been kind of a fun enriching thing to do throughout life. My guest is Dimitri Matheny. If you live in the continental United States and often other places too, he will almost certainly be somewhere near where you are. And uh, you can check out his website, which is linked in the show notes, which has a uh, complete and updated list of tour dates. He's also uh, on Twitter and we'll link that as well. Uh, man, it's it's so great to uh, to kick off this 11th year uh, with somebody I like as much as you, and I really appreciate you doing it not once but twice. Uh, Jason, I'm honored. I'm a big fan of the show. I've listened to all the episodes, so I'm ready to move forward. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, brother. It's great to talk to you, right. and I'll be looking for you in a town near me soon. Solid. And that's our show. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for our theme music. Find them online at respectsextet.com. Dave Rabel designed the logo. Catch us on social media at facebook.com slash thejazzsession. Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H. You can find us at thejazzsession.com, where you'll find an archive of every past show available for free. Please rate and review the show on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us and helps the show grow. And don't forget to support the show for five bucks a month at patreon.com slash thejazzsession. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thejazzsession. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye.